Welcome to Vermont Ed Reads. We're so glad you're all tuning into our tiny little book club. Today on the show, we're going to talk about The End of Average, How to Succeed in a World that Values Sameness by Todd Rose. We'll be joined by Emily Gilmore, who teaches world history at South Burlington High School in South Burlington, Vermont. But first, a few words of background for today's show. In case you haven't spent quality time with the spectacular wrongness of industrial revolution philosophers, it will help you to know the following. Frederick Winslow Taylor was a 19th century industrial engineer who spent a lot of time thinking about how to improve the efficiency of factories. He wanted to get more product out of workers faster. And when psychologist Edward Thorndike came along and read Taylor's ideas, his own thoughts naturally turned to, where else? School. Thorndike spent his time trying to figure out how to make schools work more like factories. Frankly, both of them needed flinging in a pond. But that brings us to Todd Rose, a high school dropout who now runs one of Harvard's most prestigious thinking departments. Rose has some ideas that would have made Taylor and Thorndike's hair curl, but that just might explain why personalized proficiency-based learning is so important to keep pursuing in Vermont schools. This is Vermont Ed Reads, books with educators, for educators, and by educators. Let's chat. Thanks for joining me, Emily. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. I'm so excited to be here. Um, my name is Emily Gilmore, and I am a social studies teacher at South Burlington High School and a Roland Fellow where I spent two specific years <laughs> really diving into proficiency and personalized learning. Um, so I'm really excited to talk more about The End of Average because it's just the most validating book I think I've ever read in my whole life. Excellent. I'm so looking forward to this conversation. I have so many post-it notes in this book. <laughs> um, tell me, what are you reading now? Yes. So I am reading There, There by Tommy Orange, and I picked it up when I was in Michigan and sitting on the beach reading about the peoples who inhabited the land originally and their stories now in modern day are just heartbreaking and so powerful and I just can't stop reading it and I'm like slowing down so I can really like sit in it and really feel all of the feelings that come from it. Yeah, that's a really powerful book. I love that um, Tommy, Bo Tommy Orange is um, uh, indigenous himself, Native yeah. American himself, and then he's writing about urban... Indians, urban Native Americans in Oakland, California. That book was really powerful. And even the prologue is so incredible. Every educator should read, at the very least, those first 10, 15 pages going into the history and why the book is so important for everyone to read. Yeah, yeah. I found those pages hard. Yes, very, very powerful. Like that was so engaging for me to then really get into the characters too. Yeah, it's a great book, a great recommendation. So this one I saw that you tweeted about one day on Twitter and reached out to you right away and said, let's talk about it on the podcast. <laughs> and you gave it enthusiastic, yay. And I found this book so to be so enlightening. Um, and the number, my one number one takeaway, I think, right away at the beginning of the book, the book is divided into three sections, 
was not that it shifted my paradigm, but that it illuminated one that we all hold without really thinking about it and why we hold it. And that is this um, sort of what, what uh, Rose calls um, averagearianism. Is that what he calls it? Yeah, that sounds good to me. I kept saying it in my head. It was like, I, yeah. that's the best attempt I've heard. And so I just want to share this with, with listeners because I found it so fascinating, which is that, um, you know, everything in our, our contemporary lives is ruled by averages. Um, how we um, look at testing in schools, how we place kids in schools, the way we give grades in schools, right? Um, how we think about healthcare and our medical lives are all about averages, the average blood pressure, the average cholesterol level, the average... The size of your foot when you're born, <laughs> how long you are, how wide you are. Right, and, and the way um, uh, doctors look at when you, the milestones you hit as a young child and whether you're um, in wh- what percentile. And then in our workplaces, the way we're evaluated for our jobs, the way we do our jobs is all impacted by this concept of average. And um, it just, I just want to talk a little bit about um, the way that Rose lays out how that came to be. Shall we just, shall we just talk our listeners through it? <laughs> I think we should. Let's introduce them to Kettle Oh, Kettle That This whole part was really... I think the most um, enlightening for me because I'd spent so much time in college really learning about ideology and sociology and I took a course that was the sociology of ideology and religion that ended up being so focused on um, really the evolution of communism but also cults and also really had an emphasis on eugenics and so this was for me, like, oh my gosh, I can't believe Cadillac was really at the center to spark what became such a key part in really modern history. Um, he was an astronomer yeah. who, for a bunch of reasons, didn't have <laughs> access to his telescope. And in, astro- in astronomy, I'd learned this concept where they had to, in, because people measured the distance uh, uh, between stars or planets with time, but their time signa- the times that they had weren't always accurate. They averaged them. And um, he, at the same time that his telescope beca- became inaccessible to him, all of this social data was suddenly available. Yeah, and he became obsessed. <laughs> And he started looking at this social data, which was like, some of it was like measurements of soldiers or like ages when people died. He doesn't have access to his telescope, so he decides to, to start using this, the average, this concept that he used in astronomy on social data. And he determines, according to Ketele, who's the first person really to do this, yeah. being average is ideal. And any disparity from average is a flaw, which is fascinating because that's not how we think about it. Right. Uh, And what was really interesting, what Todd Rose, I think, is really interesting, points out is that even when you set up an average, like they do it with the average soldier, the average pilot, the average woman, (laughs) nobody even comes close to the average when you do all those measurements or all those things, right? Like nobody actually, most people have more disparity from the average than they do likeness, like more than half. Right. 
And there were actual competitions to see if there was the most average person, which sounds like the most boring competition of all. (laughs) (laughs) Are you going to file your nails before you go? How do you know what exactly you need? Are you going to stand up straight? That whole, anyways, it's mind blowing that those are those things that people focused on and valued was being the most 50% possible. Oh, because of Kettle A. Right. But then some time goes by and we meet (laughs) the villain of our story, Galton. Yeah, Sir Francis Galton. What an interesting fellow. So he saw Catalay and was, I think, learning from him at the time and saw that Catalay was comparing people to the average. And Galton says, hmm, I think you're better or worse than the average. Yeah. If you're above average, you're better. And if you're below average, you're worse. And he's, he's related to Darwin, right? He's a cousin of Darwin. Right. And the founder of social Darwinism, I believe. And um, he's sort of, he's an upper-class Brit, and he has this notion that if you're good at one thing, you must be good at all things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that um, these below-average folks bring society down. The imbeciles. Yes, these <laughs> terms. Like, he makes this whole scale of humanity. Yeah. Imbeciles all the way up to... Eminent. The eminent. The eminent. I'm certain, and this is what's, you know, the case all the time, he defines himself as eminent, of course. Of course. Above average. But Queen Victoria is also up in the eminent, which I thought was, she might be the only female, which I Mm. would like to look more into. (laughs) Right. So he takes and says, he starts looking at standard deviation, right? Right. And so average is only average. And he's the first person that gets us as a society looking at social data and thinking about being above average or below average, which really gains a foothold. First in work um, through uh, Taylor, um, who focuses on standardization of work to meet the average. Mm -hmm. Um, But then through standardized testing, IQs, um, Thorndike and his um, standardized tests and his notions. And so I wondered if you wanted to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Taylor really stands out to me as somebody who during the Industrial Revolution, well, post-Industrial Revolution, the whole Western society is trying to figure out how to do things bigger and better and faster and more efficient for, for cheap. And that's where Taylor really makes a huge shift in the whole dynamics of Western society of, we should have people who are not physically doing the work, but telling people how to do the work which I think everybody listening and not listening has probably felt that of I'm doing something and the person above me may or may not know what I'm actually doing. And you can thank Taylor for that. Right. (laughs) Also that like um, humans as cogs. Right. Exactly. You do the job. They've decided what the most efficient, best way to do it is. Yeah. And there's no room for innovation. This is like factory model. Um, Uh, where you do the same thing over and over again. Yeah. Oh, there's a great quote that I found. Hold on one second. So in 1918, so mid-World War I, Taylor says, 
The most important idea should be that of serving the man who is over you his way, not yours. Talk about disenfranchisement. (laughs) Well, and what's really interesting is that education followed suit. So Edward Thorndike, who apparently was a very efficient man. Yes. Who did a lot quickly was also sort of one of the creators of standardized tests. And he believed, and this is a quote from page 53, Thorndike believed that schools should clear a path for talented students to proceed to college and then onward into jobs where their superior abilities could be put to use leading the country. The bulk of students whose talents Thorndike assumed would hover around the average could go straight from high school graduation, or even earlier, into their jobs as tailorist workers in the industrial economy. As to the slow-learning students, well, Thorndike thought we should probably stop spending resources on them as soon as possible. I wonder in what ways um, schools still produce these results, even if they don't intend to. Absolutely. And this is also putting it into context, which Rose does, is in 1900, 2% of Americans were graduating from college. So that is a massive, it's a massive growth that we've seen in the United States, which Rose also talks about not taking that for granted. Like, yes, Thorndike and Taylor had huge impacts on America. And without that, many people would be in totally different places. And yet those really, really negative um, consequences are still things that we're trying to unpack today, especially the word of serving those who deserve it, those who are skilled. What does that mean? Who is actually being served then? When he's writing this, women didn't have the right to vote. The Civil Rights Act had not been passed. So we're looking at such a small section of America. And it's post-World War I. We haven't seen the Great Depression yet. We haven't seen World War II. The world is so vastly different that it's so, it's fascinating to think about what this landscape looked like that he was really talking to. Right. It's also a really narrow definition of talent. Right. Who gets to define what talent is and what it isn't. I worry that it's really a double whammy for some students. Not only are they not given the resources they need to um, to thrive in our world, they're also um, stripped of their own talents because they're not recognized. Yeah, right? absolutely. Um, I remember being, I'm a bit older than you, <laughs> but I remember taking standardized tests in the second or third grade. and. Um, uh, on paper, <laughs> with bubble sheets, and um, crying when they got too hard for me because it was progressive, right? You kept yeah. going, and I believe they had the name Thorndike on them. I, I have this pretty solid memory of the name Thorndike from my elementary school years. Wow! And so his test stuck around, right? Like that model stays with us today. Yeah. Through NWEA and um, SATs and ACTs and all of the standard SBACs, all the standardized tests that are norm-referenced, right? that they're referenced against an average. Right, and I think that's, even in conversations today with students about when you should sign up for the SAT, 
recommendations are being made that you should be taking the SAT when more students are taking the SAT because your chance of being above average is greater because more students are taking the test. That is absurd, especially for students that are saving money, their own money, to take the tests when they should be not, first of all, not having to spend their own money and not having to pay for a test that is not giving valid results. Right, because that's that still only measures certain kinds of talent. Right. Right. Reading, writing, math, right? Like the, the ACT is a little bit broader, but that's still a very narrow notion of what talent means. Right. Um, I think I also have this, I, I was also listening to Radio Lab. Um, they did a series called G, which was all about IQ tests. And so this, as I was reading this book and learning about the ties of standard deviation, average and standardization and norm reference tests, to the eugenics movement. I was also learning about the IQ test and its link to the eugenics movement and yeah. um, Galton's language, yeah. <laughs> which sounds very like the eugenics movement and just feeling like, oh, this like grief or this like, I, I guess, um, rage that we still use these tools that were used to strip people of their humanity. Yeah. That these tools that were linked to genocide and to um, all sorts of horrors are still in our toolbox. Right, right. The forced sterilization that's still happening today because of ideas that are centuries old and have been proven to be fairly irrelevant. That gets us to this fascinating part of the book um, called The Ergotic Bait and Switch. <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? This was thrilling to me on page 62 of the book because it's not just that they're old, they were wrong. Right. Molinar recognized that the fatal flaw of averagenarianism was its paradoxical assumption that you could understand individuals by ignoring their individuality. He gave a name to this error, the ergodic switch. The term is drawn from a branch of mathematics that grew out of the very first scientific debate about the relationship between groups and individuals, a field known as ergodic theory. If we wish to understand exactly why our schools, businesses, and human sciences have all fallen prey to a misguided way of thinking, then we must learn a little about how the ergodic switch works. And he proceeds to tell us in this chapter about how the math is wrong. Right. The math we've used for centuries is wrong. It makes sense. <laughs> I mean, when any person talks about their experiences, even my mother talking about how our, her three daughters were born on their due dates and how that's bizarre, then why have a due date? It, when you're measuring and you're seeing the development of children over time, and he gets this later in the book about... Um, learning to crawl versus learning to walk and how you know babies will do that at different times and at different rates we yeah. see it every day right but we're yeah. told something different and somehow we still believe what we're not seeing and yet parents worry over those de developmental milestones and we'll talk more about that later and the, the science that's debunked them right as um as useful and so the thing i really love that Todd Rose, the point he makes again and again in this book, is that averages just don't work. 
not just don't they work for everyone, that there are outliers, but for anyone. Um, I wondered if there was a, there are a ton of anecdotes in the book about how nobody's really average. Yeah. Um, I don't know if there's one you want to share or if there's something from your classroom that you've noticed. I mean, I think, first of all, what stands out to me is I, right after reading the book, I listened to Todd Rose, um, his interview with Dak Shepard on Dak Shepard's Armchair Experts, which I love. Um, and he talks about, they both talk about individuality versus individualism, and that the focus is really on individuality, the individual person. And they spend a lot of time talking about Todd Rose's experience in his own um, educational career and how when he was in high school, he failed out. And yet now he's a professor at Harvard and very well-renowned and is running the mind, brain, and education program is just phenomenal. And you would never know that he was somebody who failed out of high school. All and- of his teachers are in shock that he's <laughs> yeah. at Harvard, right? Like they're all going, how the heck did that happen, right? Right, exactly. And so you see that focus on the, indivi- the individual has different needs. And his dad saw that. And so his dad was really able to help him, was really became that teacher figure, that one to really intervene and say, These, this is why you haven't been successful yet. Um, I love that this book comes out of his own lived experience. Yes. Right? Like his passion for this comes out of his own lived experience as somebody who went back to college with kids, who struggled, who had to find a different path. Yeah. And I think he, from the other articles that I've read and the interviews, he really is so drawn on trying to prove himself wrong and he keeps finding more and more evidence as to why the end of average is constantly <laughs> a necessary piece of life. We need to get rid of the average because we're all individuals. Yeah. And it, you know, we love ourselves, we want to love our potential and as teachers, that's what I want to see every day. That's my goal at the end of the day is for each student to feel like they know themselves a little bit better. A lot of his stories wrap again and again around um, this idea of pilots and building a standard average sized um, uh, cockpit for pilots and it fitting no one. And so there were a lot of errors and unnecessary crashes because it fit no one. And then he tells this great story. I almost don't want to tell it because if you read the book, you should totally read this book. (laughs) I'm not even going to tell it because it's so great when you realize more about this specific pilot um, who does this amazing thing. But that when they design for average, no one wins. Like it's it's failure for everyone. And I think about that in our schools because I think, unfortunately, because of our workloads and our um, class sizes and um, the amount of courses we teach, now a little prep time, I think it can be really easy to plan for the average. Yeah, and that's, that's the visual that immediately comes to my head is in every professional development that has anything to do with personalization, there's always the image of don't teach to the middle and there's the row of desks and there's one student in the desks and then you have the students on the outside who are below and above. And really, it's just those different pieces of the individual that we see highlighted in that particular classroom. Yeah. I love this quote that he has on page 66 about that. Averages provide a stable, transparent, and streamlined process for making decisions quickly. And in a way, we've stuck, stuck with averages because of efficiency. 
But I just think of all we lose. And what do individual students lose in a system that's still using norm reference tests and focused on um, how, if you're on grade level or off grade level, that's part of average Arianism is this idea of grade level. Right, right. And I think that was a really interesting concrete takeaway for me when he starts going into, um, he talks about Khan Academy and the beauty of Khan Academy and how it can really meet students where, they're, where they are. Um, and he keeps coming back to this idea that speed does not equal success. And that is something that keeps coming back and it's so powerful to really sit and seep in. Um, it doesn't matter how fast it takes. He gives a great anecdote about driving. And he says, a driver's license does not record how many times you failed the written driving exam or the age when you finally obtained it. As long as you pass the, the driving exam, you are allowed to drive. Right. I, um, I think we in schools um, privilege um, fast processors. Oh, absolutely. All the time. It's easier. I'm a fast processor, (laughs) and school really worked for me because I'm a fast processor, right? And I don't just mean like wait time. Like I think a lot of teachers try with wait time, but the fast processors, the kids who get it quickly, maybe not deeply, but get it quickly, are really rewarded in our school systems. And I think that looks different too, is you have a lot of, I have a lot of students in my classes that look visually like they're understanding what's happening, right? If you're quiet, she'll move on, she won't ask any questions. That doesn't mean learning's happening. Right. We have a lot of kids who slip through the cracks that way, right? Right. Yeah. I, I, he talks, um, he, he actually delves in. Now, this book is just full of research. And he delves into this idea of pace later on in the book. He says, um, he mentions an experiment where students are learning probability theory, this math. And they do um, a, a control group that learns at a fixed pace, right? They learn the same material at the very fixed pace. And then they have a self-paced group. And um, they can learn it however long it takes them. And at the end, when they do the test, 20% of the fixed-paced group achieved mastery. And they have defined mastery in a particular way. But 90% of the self-paced group did. And that data really blew me away. Mm -hmm. Like, how can we go with fixed pace when that's the difference? Right. Right? Like, and, and so... Providing varied pacing, varied pacing is challenging in public schools. I get it. It's really hard. Yeah. I think we have to shift our paradigm of what school looks like in order to make um, really wild, widely varied pacing work. But it seems really worth it. Right, right. The evidence is right in front of us. 90% over and over again. achieve mastery. And this is statistics. This is not a three-digit addition. This is statistics. Um, And so I'm wondering, have you experimented with pacing in your classroom? I've definitely used more and more as the years have gone on with really self-driven summative assessments. That really has been a game changer. And looking through, today was the first day going back into the school building for actual work <laughs> and going back and thinking about what are my goals for my students this year with the new crop of ninth graders and looking at their pictures from eighth grade knowing that they had yet to experience that school year because we get those little pictures from the incoming students um, 
and going back and then thinking about what was the experience, the reaction of my students from last year, my ninth graders leaving their ninth grade experience and seeing some of their still eighth grade pictures because they didn't get their school pictures updated and thinking about the growth that happened when you don't assign them a topic. And that for me, it's a small jump into the self-paced. Um, a lot of the work that we're doing in the world history classroom is removing those immediate definitions and terms that went along with the old, very Eurocentric curriculum um, that I learned when I was in high school and really opening it up to look beyond things that you know. So when we're learning about forms of government, we're going to look at pivotal shifts in forms of government. So you need to be able to show me what was one form of government, who was trying to change it, and why, and now what's the new form of government if there was a successful change? Or what was the form of government that they wanted in the attempt to overthrow the status quo? And through that, students were looking at everything from what was happening in Venezuela to what was happening in Mexico. Um, I'm sure there will be a lot looking at what's happening in Hong Kong right now. And students were looking at, you know, 500 years ago to what was happening in modern day. And they're having these conversations together comparing what's happening with democracy and how democracy looks in so many different ways. But they had weeks to work on it in class. And so some students I was working on the first step of the project up until the final day because that was what was most interesting to them. And it didn't mean that they weren't interested in analyzing the pivotal shifts and the different forms of government, they were like, but what is this government? It's so complex. And that to me was more valuable than having them jump through the five steps that I had put together to eventually look at deep analysis, which I'm realizing is more of like a college project. Um, but by having those really varied opportunities for students, they're able to choose how they're using their time each day. So it sounds to me like you are both um, experimenting or using pacing and voice and choice in really powerful ways. And one of the things I hear from uh, teachers a lot is, but how do you manage all of that? How do you manage so many kids on so many different topics? I, I hear that you have this overarching topic and on different paces. So I'm asking you, how does Emily Gilmore <laughs> manage this? It takes a lot of control actually to let go of the old curriculum. When I first started working at the school I'm at right now, I had had a totally different teaching experience and a totally different upbringing um, through the education system than what I was experiencing in my first year teaching. And so I was looking at this really, really Eurocentric, very confusing curriculum that went from the Renaissance to the Berlin Conference in Africa. So you went from Germany doesn't exist to Germany's imperializing a country and committing genocide. So how do you, what happens there? That was very confusing and it felt like a lot and very stressful. And every day I was walking into school, how am I going to teach the Enlightenment? World War One's really important. How do I teach the Industrial Revolution? Those things aren't there. How do you make those connections? And the next two years I started to really think about that's okay. I can introduce it and I can give anecdotes 
But the bigger idea is that students care about what they're learning in world history. They're in ninth grade. I can't tell you how many, particularly, it just so happens to always be this group of 49 to 70 white men who are reading Civil War books and World War II. And you're a history teacher? Now, what are you teaching about the Civil War? What are you teaching about World War II? Have you learned about these different battles in World War I? I'm like, mm-hmm. um, yeah, you're still learning. That's great. I have no reason to teach my kids the specific battles of World War I as 14-year-olds. They need to learn about the world around them and that there are different people and that different people are good and that they are interesting. And your experience is different than the person sitting next to you. We're going to build empathy and understanding of that first. And that, to me, is world history. And so do you find um, that your kids are more invested because they have this choice of pace Um, product and topic? I think it takes a lot at the beginning of the year and that's really the biggest source of anxiety is a lot of students unlearning the passive form of education that they are mostly accustomed to and that's not saying that all of their teaching that's all of their learning experiences by any means but a lot of insecurities really bubble up especially 14 year olds who are right at the cusp of figuring out who they are and what they're interested in and worrying about, you know, if I say I'm really interested in the French Revolution, is the person next to me going to make fun of me? That is a really tough spot. And so that is really the focus of the beginning of our ninth grade experience. It's like, who are you? And everyone's going to be vulnerable together. And we're going to build trust. We're going to build an environment that's inclusive. And from there, the students really begin to think about, oh, so when she gives us choice, it's not overwhelming. Uh, This is perfect. I was going to have to say, we're going to get back to the book. Emily's classroom is very interesting. (laughs) But actually what you're talking about directly applies to the book, which is Rose introduces this idea, and I'm sure he's not the only one to use it, called the jaggedness principle. And um, I'll definitely put a picture of the jagged principle from the book jaggedness principle from the book into the transcript of this so people can see what it looks like but this idea that two people who have the same IQ have very vastly can have vastly different um, sort of talents or skills or strengths and weaknesses within an IQ test all over the place that they're not the same Mm -hmm. even though they both have the same number right and so I'm wondering about how that how how you use this idea of the jaggedness principle to really help students get to know themselves and for you to get to know students and know them well as learners and as humans. I, I love the visual that we will be sharing. Um, and what really stood out to me is thinking about personality tests and the jaggedness principle. It's just something that I really continued to come back to as I kept reading about. And eventually he does make that connection. Um, that the jaggedness principle, people are complex. And that in its own right is important. And that is what teachers see in their students. And I think that for me is the part that I have embraced the most. And I now I'm getting back into, okay, so how do I take the complex identity and teach them the world history curriculum that I'm required to by law? 
<laughs> that's like trying to make that work. Um, but the personality tests keep coming in for me thinking about when I was in high school and, and taking psychology, we took the um, Myers-Briggs personality test and I was INFJ and it was INFJ is the uh, least common personality type. I was like, oh, that's so cool. <laughs> Jerry Seinfeld, you're an INFJ. And then <laughs> as I've grown up... I'm so unique. <laughs> I'm so unique. I'm in a percentage of people who are also INFJ. Um, and the, for, the really important part is the first part of INFJ is it's I, it's introverted. And in high school, I felt very, very introverted. I knew I wanted to be a teacher and I would sit back in class totally silent and just absorb. And then as soon as I entered college and was studying teaching, I was like, oh, I got to have a self-talk. I can't actually be an introvert. And it gets to that idea that your personality actually changes in different situations, which Jagannath's principle then connects to all these different ideas that he pulls in with Bloom and and I yeah. just think if we could really help our students begin to understand their own jaggedness, their strengths, their, um, their places of challenge or places for growth, we could really transform their lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that also builds that compassion that when you see students who are maybe struggling with a creative project because it's called a creative project and a student previously hasn't seen themselves as creative. I remember that feeling when I was in high school where the it was you had options for your summative assessment. It was you know your final project and it was a test. You could take the multiple choice test, you could do a book report, you could uh, I remember one teacher always wanted us to make a rap or you could do something creative and you'd have to talk to the teacher. And I was like, oh, essay sounds great to me. <laughs> Rapping is hard. I am older than you because nobody ever gave me the option in high school of making a rap. I remember we could write a play. Maybe. Yeah. Um, yes, I always, yeah. When you're good at school, it can be easy to say, oh, I'm not doing the creative thing. I'll take right. the multiple choice test, please. Thank right. you very much. And I think it can get really frustrating for students when we ask them to step out of those comfort zones, especially those kids who are good at, at doing school. And this is where proficiency-based education really frees us up, right? Absolutely. Because uh, the criteria is the same. Right. you can demonstrate it in so many ways. Right. And that leads us to the next um, principle that um, Todd Rose outlines, which is the pathways principle. And I think this is so relatable to what to Act 77 and to our work in schools right now, the, mm-hmm. the kind of things we're still figuring it out. Um, he's suggesting that, like it or not, whether we want this to be the case or not, we all take different paths as we learn and grow. And he gives countless of examples of different ways people learn to read, different ways science shows us, research shows us that different ways that people learn to crawl or walk, um, that that we all develop differently. Um, That there's no such thing as a single ladder of development. Mm -hmm. There are many different pathways or webs. And and so I'm just curious, I think that we're still uh, on the cusp of figuring out flexible pathways for students. And one way I hear you doing it is saying, here's the learning, here's the big thing, Find what interests you and apply it to that. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, and the more that you learn about your students too. I, I, that's been the greatest takeaway for me is that I feel this deeper sense of love and the environment is so much more positive. When you see students sitting at their desks or walking around the room, looking at other people working, and you don't see anybody judging one another and they're asking questions like, hey, where did you find that? <laughs> or I, I read this really good article, but it actually, it connects more to your project. Do you want me to send it to you? I was in your classroom once last spring and it was such a, a calm and um, focused place that I, <laughs> I was in there. Um, so I'm going to share a quote, another quote from Rose that I really loved um, from page 129, because I think it, it's really relevant to what we're talking about. And we'd almost forgotten about him. Oh, no. And the end of average, we got so interested <laughs> in what we were talking about. The fact that there is not a single normal pathway for any type of human development, biological, mental, moral, or professional, forms the basis of the third principle of individuality, the pathway principle. In all aspects of our lives and for any given goal, there are many equally valid ways to reach the same outcome. And second, the particular pathway that is optimal for you depends on your own individuality. I feel like this needs to become the heart of schooling. Absolutely. There's Absolutely. no one way. There's no one valid way. And I, I think he goes on to say that talent lies in all the different paths. Um, and I was really inspired by that. I think that just gives such, um, makes me so happy about the flexible pathways portion of Act 77 and thinking about how we can um, help more students be successful by broadening um, the scope of pathways available to them. And I think it even comes down to what successful looks like and feels like because that's so, I think, tied to this idea of success according to Thorndike, might look different than success according to Galton and success according to you and I. That I mean, that is so important to really unpack and success for whom and yeah. where and how do you achieve that. Again, it comes back to those pathways, but success is so... I think tied to a certain set of values that we see in society and we see is really at, I see the hinge of the status quo of what we're working towards really in Vermont of we want all of our students to be successful. And I think that's also the caveat there is whatever success looks like for them and feels like for them and not what I think is successful for a certain student or their family or whatnot, but how that student is defining for themselves. And I think that's such the central piece of what we are really talking about is how do we get students to really have that metacognition of what does it look like and feel like when I'm feeling successful and how do I, how can I bottle that up and take that with me for the rest of my life? And what you're saying reminds me that, um, and I think Rose would agree, that um, we've got a really narrow notion of what success looks like in schooling. So if you're good at math, reading, and writing, 
you're a success. And athletics. Yes, but academically, yeah. we have this notion that math, reading, and writing are the pinnacle. Right. right. And so um, if you take calculus, you're one of the smartest kids in the school, and we fall back on Gal- Galton, and we assume that if you're good at calculus, you're good at everything else. Right. right. You're just smart. And I, I, I just really think not just because it's the right thing to do for individuals, but also because our economy is demanding it of us that we need to broaden our notion of the many ways there are to be successful and talented in this world, of the, mm-hmm. the many um, ways in which there are to thrive. And um, back to that podcast, the Radio Lab G podcast, um, one of the hosts on there points out that in Darwin's world, in, 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 in true Darwinism, variability yeah. is a strength. Right? And, and in this standardized world, variability, doing things differently, being an outlier, is not a strength, right? Like it, you have to succeed in these ways, mm-hmm. in these categories, instead of really like appreciating the full, broad spectrum, the broad ecosystem that right. is humanity. Just reading this book made me realize, um, made me think about how um, a lot of teachers I know are really struggling with implementing proficiency-based education because they're like, kids don't want it. They yeah. want to go back to the way things were. And part of that's comfort, right? Like, just give me the quiz, yeah. right? Don't make me really demonstrate anything. Just give me the quiz. Um, but part of it is I think that our whole world is set up for the, in this way that demands conformity and, and um, sort of asks us to compare ourselves with each other. And so when we start shifting schooling to, me, to be more about who are you, what's the right path for you, how do you access learning in the way that's best for you? We're, we're not just fighting against years of schooling that didn't ask that. We're fighting against a whole world that doesn't ask that of kids. It's right. countercultural in a way. And so what happens when we're seeing how proficiencies work naturally in the classroom and fit so many of the good practices that so many teachers have, and just like you were saying, students may say that they don't know what it is and they don't understand it and the numbers and whatever. But if you take that out of the conversation and you just let the students learn and you're using that language, they get it eventually and they move on. They're adapting to everything. <laughs> everything is new for them. And that's life for all of us is the next step is always new. Right? Throughout the whole book, Rose keeps bringing up that with all of these examples, there's groups of people who are being hurt in the process. Yes. And that's that's the greatest risk of all is by not doing anything, we're hurting more people than we are helping. We're underserving some and overserving others. Right. Yeah. But we're overserving so few. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and we're underserving so many. Right. And disenfranchising them from their own um, sort of learning, their own ability to learn. Right. And the way they think of themselves as learners. We have a lot of power. We do. It's overwhelming. It is. <laughs> but we have a lot of power to do good, to help students find themselves and feel good about themselves and um, um, cultivate their own awareness of their jaggedness so that they can navigate their learning well into the future. Yeah. I am just starting the doc program, the doctoral program here at UVM, and I feel like, oh, I know myself as a learner so well now. I'm sure there are challenges ahead, but I wish I knew myself as well as I do now when I was an undergrad. Yeah. 
or even in high school. Yeah. I just think like, oh, the stories I could tell myself. Yeah. And like my friends whisper in their ears, you won't believe what you're doing in 10 years. <laughs> Stop doing that. <laughs> Are there resources that you use to help students get to know themselves or that you use to get to know students better? We keep trying new things each year. And I think especially with the more and more resources that Teaching Tolerance is putting out around identity and social justice and really making sure that the work that we're doing is productive and not harmful um, has really helped me be reflective in getting to know you activities um, because so many of them are alienating to so many of our students. Um, And that's really been an important learning process for me of how to best learn about our students. Um, But that's, I would say that's definitely been the most useful of, you know, how can we really set up the learning processes for our students. We've been working with Identity Iceberg, so I start the year off with my Identity Iceberg. You know, this is me above, you just look at me without, I'm speaking and that's about it. What do you know? What can you make assumptions about? And then what's below the surface? What are the things that you need to learn about me in order to really understand who I am? And so that's some of the work that we do at the beginning of the year. And it's amazing. It's amazing. I would love to see some examples to put into the transcripts for our listeners. Absolutely. I'm also just thinking about how equity work is such a natural fit here because it's about celebrating difference and honoring difference. Absolutely. And um, noticing difference. and, and, um, uh, And isn't that we want we want for our students is for them to understand their own difference, their own, in order to make the most of it. Right. In order to develop their talents, to know where their um, gifts are. And to love themselves. They all come with gifts. Yeah. And we need their gifts in this world. We need all the gifts we can get in this world. We need all of the genius (laughs) we can get in this world. There's so much to do. Um, So I just want to end, you know, Rose ends with these... Um, recommendations really for higher ed and I just thought oh we at Vermont are so ahead of the game because he <laughs> starts with um, that there are three concepts to transform education one is to grant credentials and not diplomas this idea that you get credentialed because you've demonstrated competency or proficiency at skills um, which I think we're sort of using that competency-based approach even if we're not um, uh, giving kids specific credentials um, Although some schools around the state are using credentialing and they're really powerful. And micro-badging, right? Right, like Micro-credentialing and badging. Um, and so I just combined those two. Micro-badging. Micro-credentialing <laughs> and badging. Um, you're right, they are. Do you have any examples you'd like to share? I think about the work that Jen Kravitz and Erica Wallstrom um, and Marsha Castle did at Rutland with their... STEM and their global studies badging credentials. Um, I'll come up with the right term eventually. Um, But their programming is fantastic where students are really choosing a path that's interesting to them while maintaining the the curriculum that is in place at the school, but they're navigating it through a particular lens and field of interest. Um, My colleague Susan Hennessy does some work with schools too around badging. Um, We'll definitely put some examples of that in the transcript. 
And then his second um, concept is replace grades with competency. So um, we're beginning that work. Yeah. I think a lot of people are really um, navigating the hard road of getting rid of letter grades and yeah. moving towards a competency-based system. Not easy. Not easy and lots of learning and self-reflection, I think, is the really big takeaway in this process. And it requires a lot of educating parents. Yes. Right? Yes, your kid will still get into college. Right. <laughs> yes, they're still a good student even if they don't have A's. Right. right? They're still a good learner. Right. And and what does that, that, that A's are, uh, the grading system we have is not ideal anyway. It doesn't really tell us anything. And so scrapping it for one that actually defines what they're proficient at seems um, worthwhile to me even though the road is hard. Yeah, and I think there's more meat behind it too. Now students have products to prove their proficiencies rather than maybe some conversations with teachers to bump up grades. Yeah, evidence. Yeah, right, evidence. Evidence of learning. Yeah. Right. And then um, the final principle is let students determine their educational pathway. I think we're still on the road with this one. We're still figuring this one out. Yeah. I think there's definitely more and more options available pre-K through 12. And then it's that jump from, well, what does undergrad need for the application process? And what will they accept? And how will they compare the applicants to one another? Yeah. Well, and it, it occurs to me, um, we at Tarrant, uh, I think, really think about these things going hand in hand. Um, you need to be able to define proficiency, to have a competency or proficiency-based system in order to create flexible pathways that lead to the same credentialing, if you will, the same, um, uh, the, the skills are really important. It's not that we're saying throw those out and let kids wander around wherever. They're still aiming towards that um, learning goal. Mm -hmm. um, and we've defined it such that kids can get there in a lot of different ways at right. different paces, right? They can demonstrate that in different ways. The core skill, the core learning is the same, right? but the pathway is different. And those things are interdependent mm -hmm. and dependent on knowing students well and helping them know themselves well and, and um, communicate their identities well to the adults who are there to coach them and um, provide them the opportunities they need. Absolutely. And in the long term, that makes our world more successful as we have individuals who are aware of their behaviors and the impact of their behaviors and have real confidence in their abilities to move the work forward, whatever that work may be. Yeah, because we don't need any cogs and machines right now. <laughs> yeah. Like we really need creative people who are able to use their talents, whatever they are. And to them. continue to adapt to do that as well. Yeah, yeah. I am so grateful to you for introducing me to this book. I think I just saw you tweet about it and was like, if Emily's <laughs> reading it, it must be good. Because um, I enjoyed every second of it. I must have 600 post-it notes in it. We've just scratched the surface. <laughs> Are there any other quotes you'd like to share? Oh, boy. Um, I will leave us with a little bit of a scare, maybe. So this is what we want to avoid at all costs that I think is important to leave us thinking, to grapple with a little bit. So this was on page 33, Sir Francis Galton. And he said, what nature does blindly, slowly, and ruthlessly, man may do providently, 
quickly and kindly. How we apply that, I think, is really what sets the tone from the rest. Yeah. In a healthy ecosystem, lots of things flourish, right? In a healthy ecosystem, there's diversity. We can also create diversity in our schools. We'll let our kids flourish. Let all of our kids flourish. (laughs) Thank you, Emily, for all you do to help students at South Burlington flourish. And thanks so much for taking the time to talk about this book with me. Thank you, Jeannie, for the reset. This was very helpful to start the year off on a good foot. Great. I'm Jeannie Phillips, and this has been an episode of Vermont Ed Reads, talking about what Vermont's educators and students are reading. Thank you to Emily Gilmore for appearing on the show and talking with me about The End of Average. If you're looking for a copy of The End of Average, check your local library. Thanks to Audrey Holman, audio engineer, and so, so, so much more. To find out more about Vermont Ed Reads, including past episodes, upcoming guests and reads, and a whole lot more, you can visit vtedreads.tarrantinstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at vtedreads. This podcast is a project of the Tarrant Institute for Innovative Education at the University of Vermont. 